Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone on this new episode of Let's Talk I'm super happy to be here with Felix Lohmann. Felix, how are you doing? I'm well. Thank you very much for having me, Thomas. I'm super excited to have you on the show. I have a lot of questions. Um, but first, for the people who might not know you, can you introduce yourself in a few sentences? Sure, happy to do. So I'm Felix, one of the two co-founders of Neural Space, acting as a CEO together with my brilliant co-founder, Ayush Dash, who's our CTO. What we do at Neural Space is that we develop language AI products and platforms. We work on local languages, so that anything in Asia, like Middle East or Africa, we work a lot on Arabic, we work a lot on languages in India, like Hindi, but also Sulu, Africans, that are spoken in Africa. Oh, amazing. Um, I, I would love to... Uh, go back uh, on a bit of a retrospective of who you are, what you've been doing, uh, what you were doing before um, being the CEO of Neural Space. Um, but uh, right before that, I'd like to ask you, what are you trying to achieve today um, in your company or maybe like personally, you decide? Sure, sure. So when you look overall at the, at the AI landscape, right, when you actually look at who develops the core models, the foundation models that power chatbots, that power voice assistants, that even power something like an, an image recognition solution. There's very often one of the big technology players at foundational layer, right? So that's either Microsoft and they have some cognitive services on Azure, they obviously, obviously are working very strongly now with OpenAI. But also Google, Google Cloud especially, has a lot of offerings like Dialogflow, Google Speech to Tech, and so on. So there are many, many products and there are many companies that tell the world that they are an AI company. But very often the underlying models come from actually big tech players. And it's totally fine, right? Not everyone needs to work on that foundation layer. And But what we do is that is that we give all the power, or at least lots of the power, who develops AI solutions to the big technology companies. And predominantly, they are based in the US, they have had large customers in the US and Europe, and they really haven't focused much on these local languages. Obviously, they do Google Translate, can do Hindi, and can do Arabic. But as all of us know, AI is never 200% accurate. So when you actually use that Google Translate for Arabic, for example, or when you do a Google speech-to-text for Hindi, you won't really get high accuracy. And lots of applications that are built on top of that, for example, some kind of call analytics solutions, right? It won't work when you don't have high accuracy. And when you only get 50% accuracy of your speech-to-text transcription, any analytics on top of that, on the transcript, won't be really accurate, right? So that's very important, and that's why we want to be a foundational layer that really increases the accuracy of local language AI solutions. Hmm, makes sense. I'll ask you further on about the latest release of OpenAI, uh, which is quite impressive. So I'll uh, get your thoughts on that and how it impacts your business, because I believe that this is a very interesting thing. A lot of... Um, Mm, a lot of uh, companies who are doing um, uh, work around audio, like deep learning in general, have been, I believe, quite impacted with the latest release. So I would love to to understand your, your vision on that. But before that, um, if we can do a, a short retrospective of who you are and what you've been doing. Uh, so you've been in, in the field for some time, but can you share with us like some key moments and how you ended up um, uh, here, CEO at Neural Space, doing what you're doing today? For sure. 
So before before we start the nerd space, um, I was basically yeah a friend a friend of Edelman. So we so we are friends and we were doing really really minor work as students together, but there was not really like a deep collaboration. We knew of each other, um, but we were not kind of close collaborator. But it was like Edelman was always very interesting for me because. He is from India. He doesn't even in this in this house actually with his family. He doesn't even speak Hindi. He speaks another local language called Uriya. And this will be fascinating, right? So in India there are more than twenty-two recognized languages, which is just out of a European perspective, mind-blowing, right? So how can twenty-two different languages be spoken within one country and all be recognized? So that actually probably the war language is spoken in India. Um and what really fascinating for me, I mean, Ayushman speaks at home or we are, then he speaks officially, then he speaks English fluently, and then probably a few more languages that I don't even know. But then he came to Germany to study his master. And that's where, I, where I'm from. And uh, so we go to do a job. What was um, yeah, really fascinating is that he has he combines that knowledge of language and technology. So we obviously studied. Um, engineering, he studied computer science and had more of a general engineering degree, but we really thought there could be some, some good potential to well. So I was um, always given my education and then later on very fascinated by um, the statistics and mathematics behind those, where I see him more from the language perspective. I was, as, as I grew up, fortunate to have been traveling to lots of countries, so I've spent a significant amount of time in India, across Africa, and other Asian countries. So I was aware of that problem, right? Of local language, provide this technology. At that time, phones were mostly in English, all the local language speakers use their phones and all of that. So um, I then went on to do a PhD in statistics, where I usually then worked a bit more in industry. I gained even more experience as an engineer. And then really at some point, we said like, why don't we actually start a real space? Why don't we start a company together? Because our skills are combined, combine each other really well. And the people are thinking there is there's a need for something like that, what we have always been seeing and what we have been discussing. So yeah, that's how we how we started it. Obviously, um doesn't go always perfect from day one, but like every other founder knows that. Um but we avoid, right? So you you just need to keep an open mind that you're wrong. And then you evolve, you need to listen carefully to customers of the one where there's actually need. And that's how you develop a company, a product out of that. Amazing. I think we'll be able to get in details about this process of building uh, something like that from scratch. Uh, and the journey is very interesting. And I, um, I'm i really curious to, to ask you more about... Uh, how you've been growing these and how you've been approaching these problems and what are the main pains of your clients. Coming back to my previous question, um, yeah. I think it's uh, interesting because this is um, a podcast format to like have kind of a time, time related to uh, latest events. So what I mean by that is um, uh, the... Um, the releases of OpenAI uh, were um, one week from today or something, maybe a bit more. Um, and I would like to ask you about how how an update like this impacts uh, your vision and your business. Does it enhance it, or does it um, like how, how does it impact? And yeah. how do you see the latest um, releases of OpenAI? Yeah. yeah. So overall, right? Um, we we work predominantly on on speech and some some document processing uh, product and platforms. So OpenAI did release a new version of Whisper, which is uh, open source speech recognition model. So that's obviously very interesting. We already carefully looked at uh, what they call the word error rate, which is kind of how accurate the model is, and we compared an hours especially for Arabic, Hindi. In a few more languages again, again that. And for that, we actually see it's good solution and it is it's a good foundation. Many companies or many developers probably do on top of that. They try to fine tune and all of it. So so that's all all good. Um, 
for us, given that we develop mostly enterprise great systems, uh, we still outperform accuracy. We still get low order rates across all networks that we offer. And we have a lot of things built that are really enterprise specific, right? So we have built um, on-premise installation capabilities, which OpenAI Bone doesn't offer right now, but in the future, and multiple other things. So our customers generally ask for um, world-level world timestamps, which OpenAI, uh, even the latest version, I believe, doesn't have. So they have segment-level timestamps and lots of kind of features which enterprises need, which you know, Windows model doesn't have yet or doesn't have right now. Uh, however, the accuracy is obviously very impressive, and we, uh, uh, we obviously carefully um, look at it and observe the development in that space. Otherwise, so we haven't done, we or we don't look too close at OpenAI because we simply we are not going to be a generative AI start to startup, right? We are not going to look at some kind of um, text generation that is comparing them to ChatGPT or should be somewhat of a general purpose text generation. We do offer, for example, for our speech-to-text customers, um, when there's a full call conversation, for example, we offer summaries. And these summaries are obviously based on an uh, and a large language model, but yeah, that's heavily fine-tuned towards that use case that we really don't uh, don't feel like anything like that interface because it's simply although a building problem on top of the speech to text, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we are very, very happy that OpenAI does so great, great work. Um, but we don't see them as any competitor. We don't need to see, don't need to feel like anything what they do is kind of taking away customers from us. Hmm. Makes sense. I'd like to go back on the on the journey of how you grow, how you grew neural space and and like where it kind of started. So um, could you share with us like um, when uh, your friend and yourself at the time, you've been traveling a lot, uh, yourself uh, is uh, from India originally, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, and so you are both very interested in language in statistics in yeah. technology and so on. And you decide to uh, create neural space um how like why <laughs> why did you go into this adventure uh yeah. you kind of shared a little bit before and um and if you could share a bit of like all right when we when you said okay let's do this where do we begin like how was yeah. the beginning was it a pog yeah. was it the first model trained can you share a little bit some insights yes. regarding the genesis of the company yeah, all I'm going to share is, is definitely not, not best practice. There are many things that can be done back up, but I just share like how, how we did it. Mm-hmm. So, yes, why we started? Simply because we saw a need. We found it that unfair that there is technology that can really make our lives as English speakers or even European language speakers significantly easier. Could be, I don't know, could be Amazon Alexa at home, right? could be something else that makes our life really significantly easier and more enjoyable. And simply because someone else doesn't speak the language, they should go hardship, right? Or they should go through hardship. And this is like, okay, Amazon Alexa is nice to have. You don't really need it. You have to depend on it. But uh, there's an instance which which I like to tell from uh, from India where people could book their COVID vaccinations through a chatbot. Mm-hmm. Knows anybody to WhatsApp and or not, but in the beginning it only worked on Hindi and English. And as you know, there are lots of lots of other speakers mm. which uh, of other languages popular in India, and there are lots of people who don't speak Hindi or English. So what does it mean? They cannot book a COVID vaccination? That's really unfair, right? Mm. So it was for further motivation just to be okay, let's develop foundational AI models that are very accurate in local language. So no company has any excuse anymore not to implement that for local mm-hmm. That was the other reason why we start. Okay. Then we started, we luckily got into an accelerator. So we went through a textile program, which gave us a bit of funding and lots of learning. So you have kind of the initial ideals, how you can build the product, how you can build the company. 
Um, but you speak to lots of mentors and lots of industry experts through the program, and they really challenge you. That's their job, right? And it's very good. That's a challenge. It's sometimes very hard because you can question your fundamental assumptions, the fundamental ideals about the market and what the market needs, and they really challenge that. Uh, but it just redefines what the product or the company should look like and mm -hmm. what to build. So that's all very good. And then after that, we we basically built one product, which was good for us to use then as a backend for a chatbot. So it could do something called intent classification and de recognition again for local language, predominantly for Indian local languages. And, and that could work really well. So a lot of um, people used it in the end, and then we got to pick up some customers, luckily, for that. But what was then kind of evolving is that. I, like at that time, Hugging Face also started to pick up, and lots of people uploaded their models that they trade on Hugging Face, right? Mm -hmm. So there was suddenly like a lot of open goal stuff available. The companies being said, okay, when I have already a team of, I don't know, five data scientists who are being need to buy an external API, or can I just like, ask them to sit two weeks together and integrate a model of Hugging Face and then use that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it really made it significantly uh, more challenging for us to build that product. Which is again, I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm not angry about. It's more that the open source community picked up, and this is obviously great because lots of more people then understood what AI can do in order than work with AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was first, and then we thought, okay, like what other challenges are there for local language people that uh, we should tackle, or that we believe people would have a benefit from, and then we went more into the voice. Uh, voice related uh, products and applications and and then we saw okay it's not only a different language it's very often also an accent or a um, dialect that people speak and they have been neglected by systems so in the UK a brilliant example is Scottish and the Scottish accent right it can be very strong depending on what region you are and I spoke to many people who said whether whenever I get onto an IVR and whenever the IVR uh, tries to understand me, it doesn't really get me because I have some accent. Mm -hmm. I think there are many other dialects. So in the Arabic speaking world, there are so many different dialects. Every country at least has one strong dialect. And again, the companies, the big companies, the big technology companies have focused on what they call what standard arrived. So yeah, it's really not not that uh, great for these local speakers. And that's where we said, let's try to do something in that space. And then the we have developed that and released voice AI and yeah, have really focused on local networks together. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, so speaking of the, of the local languages, I would like to ask you about, um, if, so when you started, uh, I really like how going through this accelerator and like really being challenged by experts to what is uh, your like what is your project and what are you uh, going to offer and so you focused on uh, this uh niche but to solve this problem um how do you go about building models that really understand well and have a high accuracy for local languages like can you share a bit about the process of how yeah. how can you solve this problem yeah so you could tackle the problem from two different perspectives and that's often two different sides and that's how any machine learning engineer and data scientist would say okay what you can do is you can work on the underlying model architecture and you can work on the data set but other like everything else what you do is probably an add-on that's all about these fundamental two fundamental sides um you can you can really try to improve so mm -hmm. We worked on both simply because we were thinking there is room for improvement on both sides. So what we did first is develop an underlying deep learning model architecture that we, through our experience, through multiple evaluations, have believed in the beginning that it will work really well for local languages. And what what makes local languages different from English is that there is both the born not as much data available. So we looked at uh, model architectures, which are very data efficient. 
I don't want means, okay, do we really need to have 25 hidden layers in our deep learning model, or do we need to have 50 transformer blocks one after the other? Can we not build something more efficiently? Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to be first work on, right? So we obviously have a data set, uh, which we believe is quite representative of what we will use later on, and iterated building new model architectures, train on the data that evaluated all the test data that will not delineate. And it's still an ongoing process, but we we are very far already in the process. I would say where we can say, okay, we are quite confident that the certain model architecture will work on a certain language back. And and that's yeah, simply through our iteration and through our and through our ongoing development that we this is side one, so you work on the underlying model architecture. Side two is that you work on the data set, right? So the data then that you want to give, and again, OpenAI with Whisper did a great job on that. They gave it, at least in the previous version, they gave it 680,000 hours of multiple languages or with human validated transcript. So there's obviously a huge amount of data, and they probably spent a lot of money on hiring people to connect that data, uh, but that's something that is out of our possibilities, right? We are not by far not as well funded as OpenAI, uh, but you still want to build very accurate models. So what we then did is that we collect our own internal data sets that is based on open source data, that is based on um, hiring freelancers that collect data. We have worked with some data um, collector companies that collect the data for us at all, that we then combine to get a unique data set that is also quite well representative for the uh, for the customers that we expect to have, mm-hmm. and that just performs also really well on open source data sets that are commonly used for benchmarking, right? So we use Common Voice, Eleven, for example, Thrills, and multiple other data sets. So all of that. Um, yeah, really then combines with the model architecture plus a unique data set and fairly large data set combined gives very high accuracy. And yeah, this, this is what we do, what we ongoing, uh, have ongoing development. So we collect more data, we fine tune, we um, modify the model architecture in more detail and then hopefully even increase accuracy in the future. Right, right. Uh, I mean, that, that seems like the, the best two approaches to go, uh, one complementing the other. Uh, my question for you is, um, so I assume, like you said, there aren't uh, that much um, data compared to English, let's say, or other uh, languages. And like you said, uh, in India, there are like uh, more than 22 languages. Um, so... So that being said, um, I have two underlying questions because this is such a niche expertise to have, like to validate those models, because even if someone speak, um, speak two or three languages, that's not enough to review like the 22 languages that we could uh, try to, um, to build models uh, for, um, uh, for India, uh, India the dialects. Um, so... Taking this approach, uh, I assume that you you can uh, you can um, you can ask experts, people to review, and so on. But I would also ask, how do you deal with um, maybe uh, building like augmented data sets? Maybe like do you use like what kind of techniques do you use? And Further on, like does the latest model of OpenAI, for example, the GTPT4 model, can those models be used also like on specific dialects? Uh, maybe they vo- they work very well, and like you could maybe do um, uh, augment the data um, using those models too. H- how do you see this uh, overall picture? Yep, definitely. So for the voice data or speech data. We can't really use um, OpenAI GPT-4, right? Or because it, it generates text. Okay, you could have then a text-to-speech engine reading that out, but it's kind of giving AI-generated data to train AI, 
which should then work on humans actually, right? So this is very often not that successful. Um, we've tried a little bit just to enhance our data that, but you don't get from these text-to-speech voices, right? You don't get such a big var- variation what you get mm-hmm. from actual humans. So right. just to give you a comparison, um, when we collect data, we normally don't want to have more than off the total radius. We never want to have more than about 0.5% of a single speaker. So there should be at least 200 speakers always in the data, right? If not even more, that's absolute, the absolute maximum. Very often it's like one speaker accounts to 0.1% or less of the data, right? So that each data that I'm holding a thousand speaker normally or a language, at least. So what that means there are like, you can combine probably all text to speech words in the world, let's say for a rapping, you won't get a thousand different speakers. Now, I don't know, there may be 200 different voices at maximum, 200 different Arabic, Arabic voices at the moment available for text-to-speech. So it's, um, yeah, it's not really worth doing that. You can potentially enhance your data like a little bit with it. And I think we, um, we have tried in the past, but collecting real human audio data is still very valuable because there will be background noise, there will be some world speak not pronounced as to starting out of the out of, out of the dictionary so there are lots of lots of things that um you don't want to do uh however you can still enhance your data that artificially with for example adding some constant background noise right so as you speak we could have i don't know sound kind of fan going on right all the time or we could have even some noises here and there in between it could be a doorbell ringing or something or we could have another speaker in the background right which very often happens at call centers when the agent speaks and literally a meter next to her sits another agent speaking so you have that background person speaking as well so we do all of that to enhance actual audio data that we have so then you can obviously use all of that combined to trade the model because you want to have some model being working well in these scenarios, right? In the calls and you want that it works really well because there are multiple people speaking at the same time. Someone maybe with a very strong accent who's not native English speaker onto the phone and so on. So you want to combine classic data doses. Right. Right. Makes sense. Um, right. I wonder though if we can push. Um, uh, further the text-to-speech models because now we can fine-tune models to match voices. So if we have different person with a specific local uh, local accent, maybe we can like play with that around and add more um, more layers and uh, background noise and maybe like uh, create new voices from existing voices. No. Uh, maybe that could be an interesting thing. But I think you mentioned that that don't really uh, work that well so far, right? It, 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 I believe it works really well in English. Um, so a lot of pre-trained English text-to-speech voices, they are probably a lot already out there. Plus, you have now uh, the what they call voice cloning, right? With, I yeah. don't know, one second of audio or so. So super quick. And then definitely you could do it. Um, as I doubt yet to work well for local languages. So you would have someone, if you tried for Arabic, for example, you know, someone probably speaking Arabic with an extreme strong English accent. You would still get some Arabic out, but it would probably be hard to understand because of the English accent is so, um, is so, is so dominant. Mm-hmm. So, we still wait a little bit for the development on, on that front in, mm-hmm. in other languages than, than English and European languages, but it's definitely a way, right? You can do that still in like style transfer, you can even maybe even want, right? Especially in English, you want to have someone like me who has a strong German accent to also be recognized. So we need to write data or we want to write data mm-hmm. uh, for, for that kind of people as well. Makes sense. Thank you. Um, so. Moving on, I, I would like to ask you about, um, so afterward, I will be asking you about how do you, um, I mean, the first question that I have in mind, 
right now yeah. is about the project and the and the market, like the needs of the clients and what they are looking at. Uh, so could you share maybe some use cases or pains that your clients face? Obviously, I assume that it is related to getting value from local languages. And um, But could you share some industry problems uh, yeah. um, those models can solve and how you can implement it uh, and yeah. how they get value, how your clients get value from it? Totally. So... Yeah, let me speak about voice AI first, and then later we can speak about uh, our document AI solution. Okay. So what people in or what for companies in, in Europe and the US um, already do probably since many years is try to get as much knowledge about customers from every possible source, right? So when you, for example, call a bank and ask, hey, uh, there's something wrong with my bank statement. Can you please do a look at that? Or can I can I show them to you? That's that. As soon as you call, the calls recorded, and then the calls analyzed after the after the conversation. Potentially, sometimes even live on the conversation. So, what happens there is that the bank wants to understand the problems that customer customers have related to a certain uh, to a certain uh, product. So when it's, for example, a simple, a simple, a simple bank account, uh, then the bank will recognize, okay, Felix has an issue with bank statement, but the normal, a normal bank account, maybe something is wrong in my underlying technology, right? Potentially. So they always very quickly want to understand when customers raise any issues or face any problem. And that has, has simple, a simple, for, for, yeah, foundational, yeah, customer experience um, problem. So what is out of the textbook and it's not always true, but what people say, when you hear a problem from one customer, there are at least 10 other customers who have to say it properly. And these 10 other customers tell at least 10 other people about that problem. So when one customer raises an issue, there are potentially 100 other customers that are informed about that. Which means that you have a reputational issue, but all of these customers, they got, okay, if my company or if my bank cannot handle that, I will change my bank, right? So they potentially yeah. lose up to maximum 100 customers. So they want to listen to their customers extremely carefully. Another, another uh, example I gave you is where there was a, a large fast food chain analyzing calls of customers. And one customer complained that, um, their child got immediately ill after they went to the restaurant. So imagine, again, this can not only mean that, okay, someone was unhappy about my product, but someone will actually got ill from it, right? So there are potentially other people who also got ill. So this is a really, really serious issue, and obviously the fast food chain wanted to fix it as well. And they basically, 10 minutes after the call, they were aware of it, and immediately started investigations why that happened. So that's all very valuable inside and potentially they could then avoid having a newspaper article the next morning about the fast food chain and how they produce food that is not edible. So it's all extremely valuable knowledge for companies and as that companies in the US and in Europe already do that. But that doesn't happen very often in Arabic speaking countries in Asia or in Africa simply because the foundational layer of that analysis is the speech-to-text, right? Mm -hmm. You need to have a transcript of the call, so you can then analyze it for keywords, for some kind of warning signals, and so on. So this is something what, what we really have, have worked a lot with calls and also provide the same level of analytical depth to call centers operating in the global language compared to what they already can do in the North American and European market. Hmm. Yeah, so that's all to to voice AI. For our document solution, what we call Doc AI, it's somewhat related, but not exactly the same. And um, we simply have in local language speaking countries still a lot of manual processes. So when you scan anything uh, from your phone, also, and then you upload your sound solution, it can quite easily extract the key information that you want to have from that document, right? Mm -hmm. So when you, for example, again, open your bank account, they will ask, 
of your previous bank statements, for example. Right? Mm -hmm. So just to validate that just regular payment into bank account and so on. So or when you apply for a loan, it's even more right or for mortgage to to buy a flat or a house. It is all very relevant all the and in English or European languages, what happens in the in the back office of the bank is that they have automatic data extraction and solutions that get the key information out of these documents and then nicely summarize it and then potentially make an automatic decision whether you get a loan or not. Mm -hmm. This does not happen in local countries. So in the rapid speaking countries, for example, there are still involved manual back office tasks. So they actually send a document to someone who refuses it, potentially types it in into an Excel file, and then the goes file all right. So we want to have the same data extraction capabilities for these languages too. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I can I can only imagine how complex is the challenge because uh, nowadays mm. we have amazing tools for like uh, big languages like English, mm. but uh, yeah, I can imagine how how of a struggle it can be to just like knowing that fifty percent of this transcript might be wrong. That yep. just uh, doesn't help at all. Um, yeah. So going from here, um, I'm thinking about the evolution of the field because we have companies wow. like OpenAI. I'm mentioning a lot of OpenAI, but because I believe that they're pushing very strong on yep. like everything that is uh, possible. Um, but so if you take your models and what you're doing today today you're mainly doing text uh, speech to text um and uh you're offering different solutions and you can deploy your models uh in different ways you mentioned before on prem and so on um correct me if i say anything wrong but yeah. what is your vision on the field like the evolution of the field like what yeah. are you excited about uh what do you think can be I don't know if threatening, but uh, like, what are you, are you, are there some updates in tech that you're uh, excited about and, and how, how do you see this field growing uh, uh, forward in time? Yeah, no, very, very good question. And um, yeah, I wish, I wish I knew everything, but uh, I'm very excited to what's come, whatever will come, right? I'm very excited about the mm -hmm. development. So mm -hmm. what I find super fascinating and again open eyes one of the leaders in it is what is called multi-model learning or multi-model right. models right so gpt4 can already process images and text and that, that's really great but what if we can also process um, audio right so when we can kind of have information input that comes from images that comes from audio that comes from text and then i produce something related to that right so in the in a very advanced state just imagine you take a picture of your room you then speak to your phone to record it um, and they how would you design this room what kind of interior design would you suggest and what kind of products would i buy and then it puts out you uh, it, it gives you a full room set up with all the different components that you should have in the room Plus, maybe even a pre-loaded shopping cart on Amazon, right? Or stuff like that. So mm -hmm. it would just, first of all, make, like, give more power to the user, right? We are not relying, not many people, anyways, only, only super rich people would hire an interior designer. But imagine, even from your garden, right? You take a picture of an, of an empty feed of, of grass and you say, what would you suggest? How might, how my garden could look like. I want to have uh, plants that are very easy to care for, that can resist in the winter cold of France or of Germany, but also be very beautiful in the summer. And then it gives you basically how it could look like with configurations of its descriptions of these plants that want to care for them. So that would be really amazing, right? So we would have like, so much more power as usual. We could do so many more things. And yeah, I think there could be could be huge benefit. So all that multi-modality stuff that is extremely fascinating. It's also obviously very challenging because you kind of need to have the same always need to take context. So when you didn't speak to the 
engine or when you then speak to the model, you want to have, you wanted the model understands the context, what is the image, you understand automatically how many square meters about has the garden and all of these things, right, which are very challenging, obviously. So that's what I'm extremely excited about. And then secondly is a field what is called um, causal learning, so cause and effect relationship. And when you look like at large, right, um, all our deep learning, or at least most of the deep learning ones, are still built on correlation. So you show for an image processing model, for example, you show a row of images and you then say, okay, in that image is a car, in that image is a horse. And then you build basically a, a correlation as, as the connection between the label and the image, right? Um, but what if we can actually have cause effect, right? So being all knows that from um, from computer vision models, they sometimes go horribly wall, even if you introduce only a little bit of noise, right? So if we had a cause-effect relationship, we would actually not care about that noise. We would not care if does a car and the horse the same image because we would have a reasoning and a cause and an effect. So yeah, these two fields of multimodal learning and causal learning are, in my opinion, the two most exciting developments right now. Um, potentially that they are combined at some point. I, I believe it would be first that we build multimodal correlation build models and then potentially later on uh, be reduce some some causal learning in multimodal models. Mm. Um, this would be great. And beyond that, I can't think now, uh, but it's will be hugely, yeah, a huge progress for the title AI field. Right. Right, I've been seeing amazing things lately. Uh, for example, uh, OpenAI financed uh, five million uh, car uh, auto autonomous cars uh, company. I, I I'm not sure of the name um, top of mind right now, but but basically, what is fascinating is that, uh, like you mentioned, um, like GPT four and the version after that. Uh, like they can, they are multimodal, but they have a very interesting way of interpretation, let's say of images. And like you said, that's super powerful. And so basically now for autonomous driving, we can have like two layers. We can have a high end layer where we have a very advanced model that can kind of get the context of what's going on in an image. And maybe this model is running every X seconds so that it have kind of a, an, an overall understanding. And then we have down all the layers of um, like concrete uh, engineering things like stopping the car and, and doing specific things and combining those are very interesting. And so if I translate this knowledge to local languages, because all of this technology, we want to see it and apply it to not only English or big language where we have a lot of data around this, but we also want to have these reasoning capabilities um, to build uh, with a local language. And so my question is, um, all of this model works very well in English, but I was thinking maybe like we can think of a framework uh, of how to use maybe a reasoning model in English in the background, but in the front, using the models that you build, for example, for specific local language. Um, and so like, do, are those things that you consider? Uh, I mean, this is really state of the art and, and I believe that uh, everyone needs time to play around with these technologies, but like, do you envision implementing this in your projects um, or like, like, how do you see that? Yes. Very good, very good question. And um, again, I am, I'm not so sure. It's, it's still very early in, in thinking about these things. In the end, we want, of course, but in the end, there's nothing better than knowing cause and effect and mm. making predictions based on the, based on that because it gives you in the entire accuracy and you won't have, in a lens, you won't have hallucination anymore, right? Which is So stuff like that is definitely very, very important and very, it should be always at the front of our mind. It's still kind of early days in the development of quarter learning, I would say. And 
am unsure when it will be at that stage entirely that's more also very philosophical thought and and exercise that we need to do what does causality mean in language right is causality actually not implicit in our language already because i'm never saying something because like because i have have not seen it before because i was not internally convinced that i need to say it right mm. so it it is a very interesting question overall what causality means in language and that is actually uh, a brilliant phd student at the moment um who works at eth in zurich and at the max Planck institute in tubingen on a topic and it's very interesting for uh, what they propose so what they found for example one thing is that when you take a data lab that was originally in spanish then you translate into english the machine learning model will do battle from spanish into english and from english into spanish mm. because, again like when the human translator created that translation they had some cause effect right so spanish was a cause english was an effect so it's all very very interesting and there's still a lot to learn just how we think about an language and how we express ourselves to properly put that into a model I know. Hmm. Makes sense. And then yeah. I believe that with fine tuning, like because when we're thinking that or when we're thinking about those concepts, we, we may be thinking like um uh on a very large picture. So we expect from those systems to work well on on a series of different tasks but if we then have specific use cases and we want to target specific things i believe that um once we have like one thing that is working pretty well fine-tuning uh those actions and those reasoning might be uh, um quite easy uh, and quite uh powerful to making something that works let's say 50 percent accuracy to mm -hmm. something highly highly uh, with a very very high precision because because of fine tuning and, and like taking into account those uh, those um uh, specific um data and problem that we can face and i wonder about like fine tuning on the multimodal level like we we fit images and and text and audio um, and maybe we can use uh, all the three to like generate uh, data from from a data type to, to another. Um, so those are very interesting things. Um, but uh, um, so if I come back to the to the to the local languages uh, and the pains in the industry, so that's one thing that you consider. Uh, now I would like to ask you about um, maybe if you have like so you shared some use cases before um, I would like to ask you about the implementations of uh, those models <laughs> and like how easier wow. it will get in the future so do you have some examples of uh, how you implement those systems today and and how it will be how it might evolve in the futures if it's all cloud on-prem or like you really adapt to yeah. anything uh, and how easy is going to become to use no. those models? Yeah, uh, very good point. So when you just think of ease of use, everyone wants to have a cloud hosting, calling a simple API, and that's it, right? Yeah. And, and that's that's great for many, many other customers that are, that I agree with that. When it comes to kind of regulated industries or even all industries, for example, again, finance or something else, I mean, they are very often then, yeah, confronted with very strong data regulations or data, data ownership roles within the country, right? Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. In Europe, we all know GDPR, right? In, um, in the UAE, for example, they have a role that data should not leave the country, right? Mm -hmm. So then, okay, what do we do? We can't be the user host uh, a cloud deployment that's in the US or in Europe somewhere because it needs to be hosted locally. So when we and they're conflicting, right? So they're conflicting interests. Once you will have ease of use for customer, uh, for companies, so companies can quickly innovate and can bring on new products. On the other hand, you want to have rightly very strong data regulations because well, who knows what happens with the data, right? And when there are countries at war potentially in the future, yeah, you really don't want that your enemy has your data because they will know a lot of things about you. So 
Es ist auch ein, ja, ein Konflikt overall, but we see that the data regulation, so when data is actually hosted in the, in the country is what will be predominantly required in our next couple of years. And, and the cloud platforms like AWS, Google Cloud, uh, Microsoft Azure, IBM, they, they kept up, right? Oracle, they build data centers within those countries because they are aware of the data regulation laws. And this helps massively for companies like us, right? Where, where we, we sell globally and some countries like Saudi Arabia as well as very strong data regulation laws. So luckily there are now more and more data centers being built in Saudi Arabia because then it's quite easy for international companies to, to step in and actually have their deployment on AWS. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And so if I, if I, I would like to push on this um, ethics regulation side, uh, what else do you face regularly uh, in terms of regulations or ethical problem uh, yeah. regarding building with local languages? Yeah. Models. Regulations are definitely quite strong, especially in the Middle East, Asia, although it's not yet that strong, Africa also not that strong on data, ownership of data, um, privacy regulations. Ethical standards, we do take care of what kind of data we use to train and what are our models being used for in the opinion. So I give you one example, which I said that the other we don't want to do it um, was where a company I obviously don't want the name wanted to have a dating platform in uh, virtual reality, right? And it is obviously by itself a, a great idea. Um, but what's uh, the issue that they face is that they have a much much larger proportion of male members than female members. And with our text-to-speech technology, they wanted to create fake female accounts. And this is simply one of the not gonna happen, right? But not with me as CEO. Um, because yeah, like the male man was something, no one of the female is speaking to me, okay, realizing probably after they are not very long, good that actually not a real female is just a fake account. So this is always very frustrating and potentially hurt emotionally that human beings are we, we did want to do it. It was the consent across the company. Actually, well, I was not the only one who said that that not probably what we're engaging. Um, so we need to assess what are our own ethical standards, what do we want to do and what we don't want to do. And sometimes, yeah, like N6 are above business performance, right? Above money. So you just really carefully assess each opportunity. And then you say, okay, do we want to do it? Do I not want to do it for 99% of all use cases? It's not, it's a no-brainer where we say, okay, if they, um, if they're going to analyze calls from a supermarket, where there's no, if there are absolutely no experts. Uh, when we do any result kinds installation, they keep track of all of the customer data themselves. Well, of course we do it, right? But there are these things that happen once in a while. We have to assess carefully whether we actually want to do it. Right. And do you see that uh, uh, regulations in general? I am not too aware of like all the regulations in different uh, zones, geographical yeah. zones, but uh, does those regulations, broad regulations about data in general, uh, assess these kind of ethical questions or is it really? depending on the principles of the company that is building these things um, yeah. to decide whether they want to, to do this specific task or not. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Then, like... <laughs> you you oh. went away. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it will... Is some of these regulations have ethical standards included as well? Um, they are still... Right, they, are, they give guidelines, and it's honestly quite quite hard to actually control for those guidelines. Mm -hmm. But they definitely give guidelines, and, and we stick to those guidelines. And and yeah, they are, we obviously respect them as every other as every other company does. But yeah, the majority or the concerning the very carefully 
um, the, the aspects of these regulations that are very need to be taken very careful and very seriously. Uh, um, besides the essay, the uh, hosting, the writing that was all simply the customers that buy from us, obviously use the technology in an overall platform, which is then sold to another business or to another individual. And they don't want to lie to their customers. So say always, or some of them um, say, okay, whatever data you process with us will be hosted in our own environment and will be totally secure, right? Very often these are large companies that have been around for, for many years. So they really don't want to risk to lose the reputation, especially about something as, um, as much in the media as data privacy, right? Everyone knows about these and so. So that's what is most concerning that as it standards, um, we have say that and we probably trust our partner as that they, yeah, they stick to the ethical standard. Right. Thank you for sharing. Um, and uh, one of my last question before asking you like the three little <laughs> questions that I have uh, at the end yeah. uh, would be more regarding NLP, NLP challenges, yeah. uh, natural language processing challenges. So so you, you are able to provide uh, transcripts in local languages and uh, I found that this uh, this um, this field is very interesting because it it uh, shows very like it can become very challenging fast whereas if it was in English it wouldn't be a problem uh, to do like specific things so if I think for example I want to uh, get structured data from calls to just like kind of an idea of uh, have an idea of uh, what's going on in these calls what have you seen um, working pretty well to use transcripts uh, and convert it into structured data to like get some insights maybe this is too specific question let me know but I'm very curious in this task of using a transcript or unstructured data in text to like yeah. uh, get specific insights and uh, yeah. and metrics like how do you go about this specifically in local languages yeah very good so over in terms of technology what you apply then on the transcript are pure nlp tasks right mm -hmm. so what we very often apply it is what's called entity recognition right so for example a customer or like Nike wants to find out how are people thinking and how what kind of questions do they ask in relation to a certain product, right? So let's assume someone calls, I call Nike customer service and say, hey, my Nike Air Max files uh, are broken after two months. The soul is losing already, I just bought it two months ago. And then the obviously takes it serious. And what then happened in the transcript is that we have trained an anti-recognition model on product names. So it will immediately detect Amrix file, right? And this is very relevant knowledge because they, first of all, the management, the quality assurance team at Nike will know why our customers calling, what kind of problem or what kind of product are they calling about? And then they can maybe even analyze the sentiment in relation to that product. So is it positive? Do I just call them and say, hey, my Nike Amrix 5 are absolutely great. They're the best shoes that I ever had. Uh, probably not, but then the sentiment will be positive. I probably call it because I have a cook made something doesn't go right as I, mm -hmm. as I expected. Mm -hmm. So this would be a negative sentiment. And then potentially, say, even a more advanced, they also want to do then an analysis, what kind of problems do customers have in relation to a cell problem? To result from it. Mm -hmm. So I'm a condition directly for fight MX5, then I potentially do intent classification or another ING recognition on the surrounding ops sent MX5 when I mentioned the word. And then, I, then they can automatically analyze why customers are quoting upon a set problem in range of certain product. And then we boils down to having obviously for the transcript a very accurate speech to text select so defines that product and correctly transcribe the product. And then I have an anti-recognition model in the local language and the intent classification model or sentiment analysis model in the local language. So it's not that different from building that workflow in English. It's just all in local languages. And what is important, 
what I always tell tell customers and what we do as a company is that things should not translate back to English because things will very often go wrong, especially from local languages into English. You still have very inaccurate translations, machine translations. I'm talking about like automatic translation. So there are companies like Google Translate, DeepL, and others that do very very advanced uh, translation, but especially through your call, when you don't follow perfect sentences, when you quickly interrupt different speakers, it's still quite hard actually to do accurate translation. So our anti-recognition models, our um, internet classification models, sentiment analysis models, all work in the local language and don't have any intermediate English translation stuff. Hmm, makes sense. Uh, very interesting. I wonder though, everything sh- might be more challenging in local languages because maybe in English I can just call a transformer that does a very great sentiment analysis, including the latest models of OpenAI. I can just put uh, transcripts without fine-tuning and just have very specific prompts to then create a chain and retrieve like specific subjects and I ask GPT-4 to like structure the data for me based on specific topics and that works very very well uh, but in local languages I would assume that each time we need to build our own data sets in the language based on the use cases and and kind of create our own models or or is there other ways or possibilities to use existing transformers well, there is probably, right? But also, what is important to keep in mind, definitely keep you forward to extremely well when you just prompt it in the way you make it with sentiment, put it out in a JSON forward according to that, 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 if, if you do a great job. Um, again, many of our customers want to tell their customers that your data is safe with us. Your data doesn't leave our premises, right? So... Again, GPD, calling GPD-4 will probably be not okay for most of our customers. And, and this is what I, what I believe happens across, across many different. You can deploy, obviously, and very powerful open source NLM or an NLM that you train yourself on premise of the customers. However, very often it's a bit overkill, right? So what kind of infrastructure do you need to deploy an NLM that is giving you response not 20 minutes later, gives the response within about two minutes. Why do you need like massive GPUs set up? Mm-hmm. Um, this will obviously bite uh, the cloud consumption or bite the local um, infrastructure budget quite well. And mm-hmm. then, if it's really necessary, can we actually not do the same with a very specialized model that is a million times smaller and gives you, I don't know, maybe one or two percent less accuracy? Mm-hmm. Most customers, they probably, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. No one yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, so last questions, uh, three last questions. Uh, they're pretty short. Uh, the first one being, um, how do you keep up to date uh, with the latest technologies and advancements and so on? And yeah. how do you keep uh, learning? Yeah. How I keep up to date, I still try to read a lot. So um, there is one really, really great um, researcher that I follow, his name is Sebastiano Odo. Um, he specifically works in local language NLP, that's why I'm so interested, but he writes a, a newsletter, comes up by email every every other month, also and really summarizes with great contributions. He goes to all to the all the well-known NLP conferences and very often also post conference kind of his own highlights on that highlights all over the uh, local language NLP. And that's what I follow. He's, he's also a great guy, a great researcher. Although he also does lots of very good work in that, but they all have said some other uh, newsletter coming out every every other months. And um, other points, I do still scroll a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, so I follow Brazilian people that that I find produce great work. So there's also, for example, um, the Microsoft research team in India, absolutely phenomenal in terms of and uh, papers and projects that they work on. I follow them quite uh, quite closely. And luckily, I do know now a couple of people in that industry overall, right? Mm. So either I meet them or I follow them. Um, and then I, I keep myself up to date. It, 
by no means I get to know everything that's going on. Uh, there's probably too much going on for everyone yeah. to keep up to date. Yeah. Um, but we also need to be, I find it very important to be like critical of what's coming out. Right? It's mm -hmm. given like archives and preprints, it's not that difficult to publish anymore, but is it actually properly assessed again, current state of the art? Is it properly, is it proper evaluation or do I get a 0.5% accuracy improvement because I was just trading on more than long enough and by chance of random, it gets a bit higher, right? So yeah. you really need to have a critical eye menu keep you there with updates. Um, but it, reading, 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 that helps, yeah. Awesome. Um, so where can people reach out to you? Uh, so you mentioned LinkedIn, Twitter, like how can they learn yes. more about you or reach out? Yeah, you know, it is LinkedIn to be honest. Um, I'm jumping on Twitter, but I don't fight the direct messages. So so useful and so intuitive on Twitter. Though LinkedIn is an easy way uh, by email. So my email is felix at neurospace.ai. Uh, very simple email, so just drop me a line. And yeah, otherwise, whenever I'm at conferences, I normally post something on LinkedIn, but just hit me up. Always happy to have that. Amazing. And last question, would you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community? It can be personal, it can be professional, it can be regarding the fields, you decide. Yeah, there are multiple messages I find. It's, um, I find the field sometimes um, gives certain technologies and certain approaches very, very fancy and very, um, very, special names like deep learning itself then uh, hallucination um reinforcement learning um continual learning obviously they're actually very fancy and what i saw myself when i first started in university learning about this concept it's actually not that complicated so they are actually very often some quite simple underlying structures and i got a bit scared of by all these really fancy names so even when it sounds like overwhelming or when someone with a PhD has proposed it, still believe in yourself and still try to be all about it because it's very not as complicated as it sounds like. Um, secondly, but what is probably yeah, my biggest problem is that um, don't rely on scientific papers as your main input source because they're very often written in a very academic language that is not so easily understandable. And you also don't have really a chance to ask the person to explain something in more detail, right? So whenever you can listen to calls, whenever you can listen to podcasts, uh, when you can actually go live to a presentation about something, I would always prefer that because people express how they speak is much, much different to how they write, especially in academic language. And then you do have the chance to ask questions afterwards, right? So this makes sense. I understood concepts at not at all through the paper that I went to one presentation from somewhere on YouTube with a presentation by that person about that topic, and it's only on which sense. So it's just much easier to understand from a direct view of the direction. Awesome. Thanks for these tips. Um, and uh, there are amazing podcasts out there, just naming yes. two that I really like, Cognitive Revolution and let's uh, Latin Space. Uh, both two podcasts that I really enjoy and, and, and that are really much what you're saying. Thanks a lot, Felix, for coming on the show. I had an amazing time, learned a lot, and yes. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.